morning. So I'm sure you guys know what it's like when your physical body sort of uh, reflects the inner person. Last night, um, Sandy and I went to take our dogs on a walk, and uh, we live, like, there are no streetlights where we live, so it really doesn't matter what I wear. So um, my typical dog walking gear is, like, my, my Nike camouflage pants, a pair of Vans, a T-shirt that I've been wearing during the day. And last night, it just felt appropriate. I put on a big Russian hat that, like, a that my mom brought back from Russia. Um, it felt a little chilly, so I threw the hat on, and we go for a walk. And we're walking down the street, and this car is coming up the road, so I go to step, take, I had Batty, so I go to take her off into a driveway, and I step, like, in the gutter, and I heard my ankle go, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, oh, that's either broken or, like, something tore, and so I'm just a little tender down there right now, walking a little ginger. It's not, not purple and yellow yet, so that's good. Um, and then this morning, I, uh, I made a hot cup of coffee and burned my, burned my tongue. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, that's like skin hanging off my tongue there. And you know how you pull it off and kind of chew it, and, right? Um, and, uh, and then you spit it out because it would be gross to swallow it. But all I had to say, we might be a little tender today. Um, let me pray for us and we will jump into this passage. Um, Lord, we thank you that you remind us of our mortality and finiteness. And we thank you that you meet us with your word and your presence. Um, I pray, Father, that you would be gracious to us this morning. Will you please, by the power of your spirit, speak to our hearts. Will you meet us exactly where we need to be met with exactly the words and the truths that we need to hear. We ask for hope and mercy and grace and all of your good things to soak deep into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, after Monday and Wednesday's chapels, uh, have gotten a lot, of, a lot of feedback. Thank you for those of you who, who have uh, shared feedback. Um, uh, one of the things that has kind of come up as a result is... Um, Few of, the, few of the folks that I've heard about ended up as a result of the discussions about sexuality and about biblical sexuality and about sexual faithfulness, um, kind of feeling deep senses of guilt and shame uh, and kind of wondering, like, you've held up this biblical picture of what sex is to be, and my life has not matched that, and what do I do? Like, I feel like, do I even really belong in this place? It can be hard to be in a Christian community when you're confronted with the truth of Scripture and the beauty of the gospel and knowing that there are parts of our lives that are, that are uh, not consistent with that. Um, and my heart's kind of been aching after I've heard those stories and uh, that question of, do I even belong here? I'm like, oh, dear Lord, yes. Like, this is exactly where you belong. And our God is a God who speaks directly to that feeling. So this morning, um, it's not just a result of, of sexuality or sexual sin that we feel guilt and shame. Um, I know that most of us in this room probably sit in that place with some degree of regularity, sitting knowing that we who are supposed to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus are oftentimes far more conformed to the likeness of self. But what does Jesus do with that? 
Um, it's beautiful that when you look in the scriptures, uh, Violet read it this morning, that Jesus embodies God, right? In Colossians, he's the son of the invisible God. In Hebrews, he's the son of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. So when you look at Jesus, you see God in his exact representation. And what's beautiful about that is when you look at how Jesus acted and lived and how he encountered people, you see theology embodied. So you see these theological truths and texts that we read and embody and memorize and talk about, you see them actually lived out in the person of Christ. And this morning, what I would like to do, we're going to look at two passages. We're going to look at Luke 7 and John 8, two encounters that Jesus had with women who are considered sinners. Um, but I want us to see how this is the lived out theology of the fact that we are saved by grace through faith and it's not of ourselves and that no one has the right to boast. The first story, so if you have that as the umbrella, we are saved by grace through faith. There are two individual stories. The first one I'm going to say is a lived out picture of what, first, of what John says in 1 John, that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So watch how that theology gets lived out when Jesus encounters a woman that the world declares is a sinner. Luke 7 says that now one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, why would a Pharisee want to eat with Jesus? We don't know. Perhaps he's curious. Perhaps he wants to test him. Perhaps he simply wants to look good that he has a rabbi in his home, and he's feeding him. But he has him at his house. And quick picture, just so, so the rest of the story makes sense. Um, when you had a meal like this in the New Testament, in the ancient Near East, um, it was a reclining affair. It wasn't necessarily done in somebody's private kitchen or dining room. It was usually done a little bit out in public, out, outside, outside of the home. And there would be a table set down, and the people would come, and they would recline at the table so their feet were out at the back. So you kind of lean on an elbow, you pop grapes, um, your feet are back. And sometimes, if it was a big enough deal, people from the town would come and kind of gather around and almost watch the meal. Well, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. That's how she's known. And when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Hold on to that. She's known as a sinner. It's how Luke names her. It's how the Pharisee is going to name her. Now, why would such a woman, who's known as a sinner, come to see this Jewish rabbi reclining at a table at a Pharisee's house. This is a place where she would not have been welcome. And here's why. Because she had heard what he was doing as he walked throughout the land. She had heard what Jesus had told John the Baptist was happening. John the Baptist had sent people to go and ask Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus says, take this back to John. Tell John that the blind are receiving sight, the lame are walking, lepers are being cleansed, the deaf are hearing, 
the dead are being raised up and the poor are having the good news preached to them. She heard those accounts. So she shows up at this dinner with a vial of perfume. And the scripture says that standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with the hair of her head and began kissing his feet and anointing them with gratitude. Why was she weeping? She's brought a vial of perfume. She's standing behind Jesus and she starts to weep. Why? What usually makes a person cry? Sadness? Joy? Gratitude? I think perhaps in this weeping, you have a bit of all three kind of woven together. I think this may be the purest confession of sin in all of Scripture. She weeps. Her tears fall on his feet, and she begins to wipe the tears off with her hair. And as she's wiping them, she just begins kissing his feet. And the, the Greek there usually isn't super important to point out, but it is here. It's this idea of kiss them over and over and over. She almost can't stop. She's kissing the feet of Jesus and anointing them with the perfume. She is blowing up cultural taboos left and right. She let her hair down, which you would never do. The Talmud actually says that letting another man see your hair is cause for divorce. She's anointing his feet with oil. The only people that anointed feet or took care of feet at all were slaves. Oil was used for anointing of the head. But she doesn't care what anyone thinks. She loves him. And it's, it's odd because there's no sense that she knows him. But it's absolutely proper, even if it's hard to understand exactly why. And we're not sure why she got it. The scripture doesn't tell us. Why did she see and know who he was? Why did she see and understand what he could offer her? We don't know, but she did. She got it. She knew what he could give her. And she breaks down, and not a care in the world for anything else. Eyes focused on Jesus, and she loves him. Now, when the Pharisee had invite, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, and hear that, he says to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he'd know who, who and what sort of person the woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. There's the contrast, right? For those who do not believe that they have sin, they are lying to themselves, and truth is not in them. The contrast from beauty to cynicism, from love to contempt. This Pharisee looks at the woman and he disdains her, but he also looks down on Jesus. Think about how crazy this is. They are both right there in the presence of Jesus. She saw her need and therefore was able to see who he is. The Pharisee thought he had no need and can't recognize him. If we claim to be without sin, we're just deceiving ourselves. But then Jesus responds and says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replies, say it, teacher. And then Jesus tells his story. He says, okay, a money lender 
has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were both unable to pay, he canceled both of the debts. Now notice, both can't pay. Neither of them can pay the debt. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I assume the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And he said to, them, said to him, you've judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? Now, right, we could kind of riff on that a bit. You could argue that no, he doesn't see her at all. He sees a sinner. He doesn't see a woman. He sees a sinner. He doesn't see a child of God. He sees a sinner, not an image bearer. He sees a 500 denarii debtor, not a $50 debtor like himself. But then Jesus says something great. He says, I see you, Simon. He says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she, she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She's not stopped kissing my feet since the time I came in. She anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, Simon, that her sins, which are many, you are right, they are many, but they've been forgiven, for she loved much. And the one who has forgiven little, he loves little. The verdict is straight and it is sharp. She loves me and you don't, because you don't think you need me. She is the one who is forgiven and made clean. And then he turns to the woman. He turns to the woman and he says, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began saying to themselves, who is this man that forgives sins? But he's still talking to the woman. And hear what he says to her. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith, you demonstrated it by your love for me. It saved you. Now go in peace. And so this sinner walks away clean, purified from all unrighteousness, which is exactly what John says will happen for those who confess their sins. The shamed woman is not just offered, she is given peace. Peace accompanies forgiveness. And I would hazard to guess it is not something that that woman knew for many, many, many years. John 8, Jesus encounters another woman. And I think this one, you have another lived out theology. This one is, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. John 8 says that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people had gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in an act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bends down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard 
began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Once again, a woman is before us, another woman who is not seen by the Pharisees. All she is is a precious tool to be used to try to trap Jesus. They cite the law, right? Jesus, this is the type of woman we're supposed to kill her. What do you think? And Jesus stoops down and starts to write with his finger on the ground. We have no idea what he wrote, but I have a, a, a seminary professor who loved to picture and say, I wonder if what Jesus was saying as he stooped down with his finger and started to write on the ground, yeah, I'm the one who wrote the law. Of course I know what it says. They kept on questioning him. He straightens up. Let any of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stoops down and writes on the ground. I don't know. Is it too much to say with the same finger that actually wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets at Sinai? This they begin to leave. They walk away one by one. No one's left, just Jesus and the woman. But instead of judgment, what does he offer her? He offers her mercy. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. But now go and leave your life of sin, something that he is freeing her up to do. So, as forgiveness in our first story brings peace, mercy brings a new life as a new creation. But notice this. Those two things are available only in Jesus. Peace and a new life. It's his offer to every single one of us. But notice there's a piece on there, right? That forgiveness involves confession of sin. That new life involves repentance and a turning away from the life that we were living. Jesus says, confess your sins. I will be good and faithful and just to forgive you. Repent of your sins and turn away and you will know new life living in the light of my word, being conformed to my likeness. Both of those things are the things that we so deeply long for, the things that we so deeply need. They are only to be found in Christ. And if we try to find them anywhere else, we will always and forever be frustrated sad, and we will never encounter what God has for us. Um, I talked to Becca yesterday, and she said, you know, where is that bridge for people who, who are sitting in sin and guilt and shame, and they know that there's this better thing over here? Where, where's the bridge for them? And it's not trite at all. That bridge is the cross of Christ where Jesus died for our sins so that he could extend forgiveness and mercy and a new life. So if you're sitting and after Monday or Wednesday, you're thinking, how do I do this? 
Am I too far gone? Is my sin too big and too bad? There is no sin that Jesus will not forgive. If you're sitting there and you're like, oh, I've got the guilt and the shame, but it has nothing to do with sex or sexuality. It has everything to do with my heart. There is no sin that Jesus will not forgive. There is no guilt and there is no shame that he will not cover. Then in that crazy process, lived out theology in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, he offers every single one of us peace and a new life. Now hear this one piece that's fascinating and important. It's not a one-time offer. It's not an, oh, I accepted, but then I screwed up and you don't know how badly I've done it and therefore I'm not redeemable. If anyone confesses his sin, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive his sin, cover him in righteousness. That's the hope of the gospel. Like I said, my heart's been heavy in hearing the people that have been sitting in guilt and shame, but this is the answer. This is hope. This is why this is exactly the right place for you. This is why this is exactly the right place for me. Because we all sit in our guilt and shame, but Jesus says, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. And in that forgiveness comes peace. And in me, you have a new life because you're a new creation. And when you do blow it, and you will, come and seek forgiveness, and I am faithful and just, and I will forgive you and you will be slowly sanctified and conformed to my likeness. The hope of the gospel, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are good and kind. Will you sink these truths into our hearts so that we know we are loved? We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.